Presley. And that was so awesome. And I appreciate you reaching out and just connecting with this group of men and ladies. And we appreciate them, their faith and their faithfulness. And I, I too, I never apologize for Membership Sunday. I believe in the changing culture that we live in today. It's good to know who you worship with. And you need to be with men and women of like precious faith. If y'all read the King James Version or the Authorized Version like I did, then you'd know what I was talking about when I speak that way. However, I want to go ahead and ask you to stand back up. We're going to read one verse of Scripture here today to go right into the ministry of the Word. As you're turning there in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles, and yes, I know we put it on the screen, but it's always good if you've got your Bible to turn the pages, hear them turn, put some actual uh, oil that are on your fingers into your Bible. It'll help you remember places in the days ahead. Next week is always an exciting service when Dr. Brassfield is with us. He is such a blessing to me and Sherry, our lives personally. I had the privileged opportunity of visiting with him um, this past week for about three hours, just gleaning some things past him. He's a great friend to me and Sherry, and uh, he's on schedule again to be back with us in November. I just wanted to make sure this will be in November, will be three times this year. I just felt like we needed to have his voice in our fellowship. So make sure you come out and support Dr. Brassfield. One verse of scripture here today. Y'all read it with me. It says, He in the first year of his reign, in the first month, opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. That's a good place to say amen, isn't it? So I've got a word today that I've entitled, I'll put a title to, Open the Doors and Put It Back. And I'll explain to you what that means here over the next little bit of time. It's a word that's very personal to me. It's personal to our fellowship. I'm going to trust that I'm heard from the Lord and uh, going to speak with the pastor's heart here today. So would you pray with me? And let's just, you know, if we can, for the next few minutes, let our, our thoughts really run to this text, run to uh, the context of what I'll be speaking from. And let's ask God to speak to this assembly today. Amen. Father, I love you today, and I'm so grateful to be in this place that I stand in so regularly, what we call the pulpit of First Assembly, and have a privileged opportunity to minister the Word. I recognize, God, that there are limitations in me personally, but I also recognize that there's no limits in you. And I ask today that as we pray often, preaching would come easy in this house, the hearts of the people would be ready to receive the engrafted Word. Father, I ask today, Lord, that you would, that you would bless you would bless this time of exhortation. I mean that with all of my heart. Bless it, Lord. Favor it, God. In Jesus' name, and all of God's children said amen and amen. Thank you so much for honoring the word of the Lord. Now, if I have to change glasses while I'm in the middle of my preaching uh, today, then I will, uh, will do so. These are my real glasses. These are the glasses that I wear where I can actually see whether you're prepared to throw something from the back of the building so let me make sure they're very clean lest it's I think it's a spot on my glasses and it's a brick heading my way so I uh, but sometimes though it makes it just a little bit harder to see my notes and then I have to revert to my reading glasses so I don't like to have revolving glasses but that's just where I'm at at 53 years of age so oh I know it's surprising to some of you I know I heard that thank you yeah, thank you. I feel that. Thank you. Um, I want to take a moment because I tied today's message, knowing that I was uh, I forgot, unfortunately, to text the, uh, the the new members of the assembly on Friday and let them know that I was intending to do this. But I knew as I was preparing my heart, and the Lord had began to put a word in my heart way earlier in the week 
that was going to be tied to the local church. And the local church is a very, very important part of the, body, of, of the body of Christ and the kingdom of God that's in the earth. And I don't know if there are any, more, uh, any, any persons more closely connected to the local body than pastors, those that have vested their life and literally live in and amongst the sheep. And one of the things that I do is I value what we call corporate worship. I value the opportunity. Now, I've got the air dropped down in here, and it's right at 7. I see a few of you fanning today, but we've got it dropped down, so I hope it's all right. Um, you know, and so corporate worship is a very big part of being a part of the body of Christ. Every church, every true church, has a larger, a larger cons- uh, you know, following or, or, or a, I don't want to say a, attendees or uh, congregation than what actually participates Tragically and unfortunately, there are a lot of people that have authentic faith in Christ, but for whatever reason, have not seen the value of being a part of corporate worship on a regular basis. And it's their loss. But it also makes the church weaker as well. And so I've enjoyed over the years studying the history of corporate worship in a biblical context, not corporate gatherings of um, other religions, but rather just what we would call in, in a biblical context. And so let me just take you on a brief journey to arrive back at the text that we, were, or that we opened with a few moments ago because the, the origin of worship in the biblical context begins with Abraham. Now, there were others previous to that but that, were, that, were, that God had had this blessing upon, but it was with Abraham that he began to call covenant people, not just a person but a covenant people. And we find Abraham worshiping God typically around an altar. You'll see that Abraham built one, two, or three altars in his lifetime. There were some significant events that took place around an altar. And then when you see the, the, uh, his lineage, you know, Isaac continued to do the same thing. Isaac is found worshiping God at an altar. And then especially his grandson Jacob. His grandson Jacob, one night on a journey, uh, pillows his head at a particular place. And while, while asleep, he pillows his head on a stone. While asleep, God opens to him in a night vision heaven. He sees the angels of God ascending and descending. And there God makes and renews the covenant of Abraham with Jacob as he's making this journey. And when he wakes up, wipes the sleep out of his eyes, he takes oil that he's brought with him on his journey and he pours it over that rock. And he calls it Bethel, the house of God. But he himself does not erect an edifice there But later, he returns to the same location, and he does build an altar. And so you begin to see the early formations of what we see as the house of God or corporate worship beginning to form. We know that uh, 400-some-odd years later, uh, we see that Moses has gone up on Mount Sinai, and he's led the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. As mentioned earlier, the Red Sea is now parted. The waters have closed back. Egypt is on one side. Israel is now in Canaan's land or the promised land, and Moses leads them to the, to the mount where he had received uh, instruction, you know, at Horeb or Sinai, and it was there that the bush did burn and it was not consumed. Well, he ascends the mountain, and while there in the presence of God for 40 days and for 40 nights without food or water, how I many you know it takes the presence of God to sustain somebody without food or without water for 40 days there, God gives him 
what we call the tabernacle, the plans for the tabernacle, which is an access point for the children of Israel to be able to worship God, but also gives them instruction in what we call the Torah towards what is known as corporate worship. It's very defined in the Mosaic law. It gives them a priesthood. It gives them Levites who serve the priesthood. There's a central sanctuary of the tabernacle. It's transitionary. It's mobile. It can move. The children of Israel are not settled in the place. Throughout the Mosaic law, you'll see a reference to the place, to the place. He said, matter of fact, I've preached about this many times. I always gain inspiration when I think about it. Moses told the children of Israel, he said, you don't do as you're doing here today, every man which is what is right in his own eyes. I tell you, that's a word that should be preached in the American culture today. All right. And so he said, but what you need to do is he said, there's going to come a place that God's going to put his name there. And that's when transitionary worship would then become more established. And then all of the benefits of corporate worship begin to be realized in the children of, or with the children of Israel. And so uh, during the days of the judges, we see in the word of God that the, 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 tra- the tabernacle is still the place, the central place of worship. It's still mobile. It's still transitory. It moves from place to place. It was during David's reign that we see it begin to stay for a little bit longer period of time. One of the most noted things about David is that David had a passion for the house of God. And he called it the house of God when there was no house of God. One of the things that David did was David brought the ark. When David had taken the city of Jerusalem and established his headquarters there, he longed to have the presence of God. The, what the, the, the text tells us there that the tabernacle was at Gibeon, but the, but the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant had been taken to, to someone's house and preserved. It's a long story. It was there. It was separate from the tabernacle. David wanted the Ark brought to Jerusalem. It's a powerful thing. They bring the Ark of God, and he calls it the house of God. And we see he even gives us a psalm. David gives us a psalm about corporate worship. He, not only does he give us a psalm, but he also receives divine revelation about the, ta- the, 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 the temple taking the place of the tabernacle and about worship and establishing the worship and the order of worship. It's divine. He said, the hand of the Lord was upon me and made me to understand these things. So we look back to David. The, t- the psalm that God gave David is a psalm that we ought to sing every day that the doors are open. David said in Psalm 122, it begins, it says, a psalm of David. He said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go up unto the house of the Lord. He said, I was glad. And if you understand it in its context, he said, when the tribes come up, when 12 tribes begin to leave the areas that have been assigned to them, allotted to them in the division of the land, and they begin to make their journey towards the central place of worship, there should come a spirit of joy to come upon the people of God to worship. Are you out there today? And so we go a little farther and we see that David desired to build a permanent facility, but he was forbidden. However, the scripture says Solomon builds him a house. And when Solomon builds the house, he built a house that was magnificent, what the King James Bible says. And Solomon, after taking the resources that had been laid up for him by David, and also during Solomon's great reign, the Bible says that gold and silver became like the rocks on the hillside. I don't know about you, that's who I want running for president. And so, uh, during his reign, we see that the temple is established at the place that God chose through David. And now, the, 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 the worship is not transitionary. No longer are you to worship here and there on every hillside and under every green tree. But rather, now, there's one place that God has chosen to put his name. So, all the tribes, 
are to come. And so during that time period, we see that there's a brazen altar, there's sacrifice, there's worship, there's the sound of trumpets, there's the sound of cymbals, high-sounding cymbals, there's stringed instruments when they're worshiping, they're having, uh, you know, they, they've got the feast, uh, they've got the daily sacrifice, the weekly Sabbath, the monthly festivals, and the annual feast at the place that God has chosen. It's a powerful thing. That's what David envisioned in his heart when he said, I was glad when they said, let us go into the house of the Lord. It was a witness to the Gentiles that there was but one God, not a plurality of gods, but one God that had chosen the people of Israel to represent him on the earth. Are you here today? But sadly, that house oftentimes fell into reproach through apostasy and complacency of the people. And we discover biblically that it was later destroyed. During the Babylonian captivity, the people had been taken captive, uh, the, the majority of the nation. And during that time period, there was kind of a renewing of their faith while in captivity. How many know God can do something? At times when you find yourself at low places on the earth, sometimes you need to stop rebuking the devil. Because sometimes God's brought you to that place where you can begin to realign your priorities. And so with that, they, they began to say, you know what? We need to have a synagogue. Synagogue means an assembly. We need because the, 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 the worship at the temple, God said it's there. That's the only place you can offer sacrifice. But it's not the only place you can study the word. It's not the only place you can worship. So the synagogue then was a weekly. And because the children of Israel are only required to go to the temple three times a year and to bring their sacrifice for the annual feast. Now, if you live closer in Jerusalem, around Jerusalem, off, 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 Obviously, you might even go daily because the doors of the temple were open. But at the same time, we see that that synagogue became a very important part of the faith of the people of God. And it was during the time of Jesus, if you know anything about Jesus, he loved corporate worship. He did. As a matter of fact, we find in Scripture that it says that Jesus went to the synagogue at Nazareth. Here's catch this what it says, as his custom was. He was accustomed that when the Sabbath came around, it wasn't time to stay home for NFL football. It was a time to go to the place that had been designated as a place of study and learning and prayer and reading. As a matter of fact, Jesus commenced his ministry by being in the synagogue at Nazareth where he was familiar and he took a scroll that was familiar to them and he read from it as he had done many times previously. And so we see but he also had a zeal for his father's house at Jerusalem. Even from an early age, as a teenager in the ICM youth group, he had a desire to be in God's house. As a matter of fact, when his family came searching for him, he said, why are you looking for me all around Jerusalem? Did you not know? Did you not know I wouldn't be at the park playing? Did you not know I wasn't going to be on the skateboard park, you know, playing? I wasn't out there shooting hoops. Now, did you not know I'd be in my father's house? And so, and so we see Jesus had a zeal for corporate worship. He called the temple the house of God. So then let's, let's transition real quickly. So then when Jesus has died and been buried and resurrected and we see a transition taking place and now the gospel is going forth, the first Christians were Jews. And if you read the book of Acts, you'll see that primarily they associated their corporate worship with the temple. They were not afraid to go to the temple. One of the most dynamic miracles of all the book of Acts happened when they were making their way to the temple for the hour of prayer. It was there that they went past the gate of the temple that was called Beautiful, and the lame man had been laying there for 38 years. 48 years, 40 years, I believe it is, something of that nature. And a great miracle occurred. So they, they, were, they were used to going to the house of the Lord. They continued to do so. And when they began to take the gospel outside the, the, the borders of Jerusalem, 
they, used, they typically used the synagogue as a means. They would go to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and they would go through all the motions of Jewish worship, and then often they would give an opportunity to speak. And when they spoke, they would lift up their voices and say, let me tell you about the coming Messiah, because guess what? He's already come. And they would, they would minister the word, and there was a movement that was taking place. Now, and afterward, after a period of time, as you see this in the Scripture and also in history, conflict began to arise in the synagogue due to the apostles' doctrine. Christians eventually broke from the synagogue, and they began to meet in homes that were large enough for public gatherings. And so we see that recorded in Paul's epistles as he's addressing some things. And then tragically, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. And you can travel there today and you can visit and there's still heaps of stones that are there to remind people. And you can pray at the Western Wailing Wall. And I have. And as a matter of fact, there are three others that were with us that have prayed there as well. And you are in the Western Wailing Wall because and not only you, but Maranatha Assembly of God, the other church that I pastored, is there as well. And I wrote a prayer praying the blessing of God upon uh, Heber Springs First Assembly of God and Maranatha Assembly of God. And I folded it up and I shoved it between the the bricks that had been, the blocks, the hewn stones that had been there since the days of King Herod. And that you're there. Did you know that? You're represented in that wall right there. And, and so we see that that temple was destroyed. But how many know that God's temple was not really made with hands in the first place? That Paul himself said God chose. He didn't choose to dwell in a temple made with hands. But he dwells in the human heart. Right? And so when Paul then begins to, to write about the corporate gatherings of what's called the ecclesia, what's the ecclesia? The ecclesia is a word translated in the King James. From the, it's a Greek word, and it means the chosen ones or the called out ones, and sometimes it's translated church. So the ecclesia, the called out ones, when Paul wrote of their corporate gatherings, he used here a simple phrase, coming together. I mean, you know, coming together for the body of Christ is very important. And here's what he also spoke of. Paul spoke of when we come together, he called, even though it's not the edifice that makes the difference, it's not the facility, and it's not even the location as it was in the days of ancient Israel, but it's when we come together, in that moment, we are the church or we are the house of the living God. Do you believe that? I do. Jude said our services are called agape or love feasts. We felt, like, we felt like if we advertised Join First Assembly's Love Feast, it would send a mixed message in the culture in which we live today. <laughs> That's funny. I don't care where you're at. Peter said we are a spiritual house. James spoke of our public gatherings as your assembly. He said when a man enters your assembly. And so similar to the temple and the synagogue, yet different. A central place of worship whereby we choose or we designate a particular place, and the fellowship once gathered becomes the house of God. Now we find in Paul's writing some but limited instruction about public worship. And we have writings from the early church historians, and I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed uh, over the years going back and trying to see what does it look like? Are we doing what they did? How many know that's important? Right? I mean, because you arrive at the place, you're like, does church look today Anything like it looked like 2,000 years ago, I don't think it has to look exactly like that, but I'd like some similarities, wouldn't you? Right? So, so church, early church writings tell us, uh, you know, and the reality is, is that some things do look like. Some are a little bit different. I, I, I have learned, even just in my studies recently, that in, the fir, in the, what's called the second century, the days of the church fathers, that, that when, when it came time for the public gatherings, the public gatherings were exactly that, were public. 
But when it came time to participate in communion, if you were not baptized, you were asked to leave. Now, that's weird in a day of inclusion, isn't it? When, it, okay, everybody, we thank God, we appreciate you here, but it's time for some of you to go. And the door would close, but it's because they believe that if you were not baptized, that you were not a part of the body of Christ. Right? Repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Are you hearing me today? And so that was their doctrine. And then even on baptism, there's some things I can go with them, but some things I really can't. And I'll tell you what, I thank God because some of that early baptism was that they were getting baptized naked. And I just don't know. I would feel weirded out being in the tub. Never mind. Let's go on. Let's press on from that one right there. I'm glad some things are not the same. Come on, somebody. You're missing a great place to say amen. And I, you, some of you ought to say, I'm especially glad if I baptize you. <laughs> Without a central place of worship as in the temple, you can expect and you do find some differences in liturgy. You can find that. But you also find many similarities. Much of the original church looked like the, looked like the first century synagogue, which took some measure of influence from the temple in Jerusalem. And though you and I are not under the Torah to follow exactly the pattern of the temple, we're not obligated to follow the exact pattern of the temple, we do look to that example, that pattern to gain inspiration and instruction as we collectively worship God. And that's my introduction that takes me right back to the place where I began. And so I'm going to look back in ancient Israel in a very pivotal and a critical time in their history. Because there is a word from God in that fellowship. There's a word, for this fellowship, there's a word from God in that text. That time in Israel's history that we're speaking of as uh, relating to our assembly today is, is that it was a time of, uh, in a, of a need for reformation for the people of Judah. Let me go ahead and set that context. When we read that text of Scripture, 2 Chronicles 29, the nation of Israel is divided. You've heard me talk about it many times, but you have to understand it. Following the death of Solomon, there was a breach and there was two kingdoms established, the northern ten tribes known as Israel, the two southern tribes known as Judah. That's where the temple was. When you read much in the book of 2 Kings, it writes a lot about the northern tribes, and there was a lot of apostasy of the northern tribes. Because of the presence of the temple in Jerusalem, then the two southern tribes oftentimes had a seasons of apostasy, but they also experienced seasons of revival. So this particular king, Hezekiah by name, is either the 12th or the 13th king of Judah, depending upon which historian you follow. He assumes the throne approximately 721 B.C. He reigns for 29 years. He is only 25 years old. He would barely be old enough to be elected a deacon in our church now when his reign commences. But the unique thing about Hezekiah is he possesses a heart for God that's similar to that of David. One of the most unique in all of the Word of God is this king's religious zeal and reformation that's been captured in the book of 2 Chronicles. But before you get look at his story, I think you have to first start with looking at what, where, where the, what the condition of the nation was that he inherited. It was his father Ahaz who, was only, um, who only reigned for 16 years. But how many know a lot of damage can be done in 16 years? A lot of cultural damage, a lot of political damage, a lot of religious damage can be done. Let me give you just a little bit of Ahaz's itinerary and things that were, that he, about him. This was his father. He died as a relatively young man, young man. He did not have a heart for God. He was only 16 years of, of age when his reign began, and he was filled with apostasy. He was idolatrous. He burned incense to pagan gods. 
He even burned, Hezekiah was unique and that he escaped the fires of Molech because Ahaz passed some of his own children through the fires of Molech. He made altars throughout Jerusalem and Judah. You say, why is that so significant? Because God had plainly said through the Mosaic law, only one altar. Only one place, a central place of worship. But he establishes altars all throughout Jerusalem and Judah, most likely for pagan worship. And possibly, even if it wasn't for pagan worship, it was to detract the people from worshiping at the temple. And he eventually got so frustrated with people coming to the temple of God that he literally closed the doors. The doors were closed Not only just on the Sabbath, but every day the doors were closed to the temple. He prohibited the priests and the Levites from serving the the temple. The people began to, 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 to drift away and no longer having access to the presence of God. The writer tells us that he provokes the anger of the Lord God of, of his fathers. And he, and he succumbs to God's judgment. He dies at a young age. He's buried in Jerusalem, but he's not buried in the, in, the, in, the, in the burial chambers of the kings. And so it is in that condition that Hezekiah assumes the throne. The doors of the temple have been shut for many years. And let me tell you what happens when the doors of the temple are closed. When there aren't any daily sacrifices, then there's no sin offering in that culture. Now, you and I live in a generation where one sacrifice or sin forever, right? But we have to understand that culture because there's a word in in this, that there was no sacrifice, there was no burnt offering. You couldn't stand from afar and say, I see the flame and I see the smoke lifting off of the brazen altar going up into the presence of God. There are no free will offerings, no thank offerings. There was no trumpet sounding, no cymbals, no praise. There was no gathering. There was no excitement of going to the house of the Lord. There were no first fruits, no Passover, and no Pentecost. Nobody was reminding them of the Red Sea parting. Nobody was reminding them of the harvest and the trumpets and the giving of the law on the day of Pentecost. There was no day of atonement. There was no priest that was going behind the veil on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, to pray and intercede for the people and to pour blood on the, on the Ark of the Covenant and then to go out and to pass the sins of the people on the scapegoat. There was no scapegoat going out into the wilderness to take the sins of the people out away from God. And so the people were under the penalty of sin. The lamps did not burn. There was no priest to intercede. There was no priest or Levite to read the Torah. The shewbread or the showbread was not baked. The light of Israel had been extinguished and the glory of God was not seen in the temple. And as a result, the people were corrupted and the priests and the Levites were unclean. Let me tell you this, church family. When the house of God is either neglected or forsaken, ruin follows. It's a desperate time. It's a desperate time. But I love Hezekiah. Because he had a heart for God. Oh, I thank God for that today. How many know you, don't, you can be 25, 52, or 85? You can still have a heart for God. Hezekiah is 25 years of age. His first recorded act as king. His first recorded act as king. Verse number three. In the first year, the first month, the first thing that he did. The first thing that he called the people together to do. His council. His staff. His newly appointed advisors, he said, let's leave here from the throne and let's go to the house of God and let's reopen the doors to the house of God. Come on, somebody. 
And that singular act launched a reformation that began to shake the little nation of Judah, the two southern tribes. The 29th chapter of the book of Second Chronicles, you got to read it on your own. I'm just going to go over it real quickly. And I'm just going to skim over the top and make it very personal here in just a moment. Is that after they opened the doors, the first thing he said was to the priests and the Levites, he said, you got to clean your act up. Sometimes the priests and the Levites got to get along with God. Come on now, we're not, uh, we're not beyond ourselves being influenced by the culture of the age in which we live. And so the priests, were, 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 they, were, they were not consecrated. They hadn't been setting themselves apart. They were, that means that they were doing things that they had not, that was against the, sancti, the sanctifying work of the law, the Mosaic law. They were, they were moving outside. They were corrupted. And he said, I want, I want you to sanctify yourself. And then he said, I want you to begin to sanctify the Lord's house. It took them eight days to sanctify the entire, that means to clean it out. And the Bible tells us plainly that there was a lot of refuse in the house of God. Now, if you were to go into our church, we could go up into a little storeroom above the, uh, the classrooms that are in the back right there. And you'd go, oh my gosh, we need to clean that out. But what I'm talking about is they went into the house of God and there were things that defiled the sanctuary that they had to take outside and burn in the Kidron Valley to cast it into the Kidron Valley. And, and then, they, then it wasn't just about getting rid of some things. It was about bringing the right things back in. It's not enough to just empty the vessel. The vessel's been designed to have the right thing placed in it. And so the, 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 the temple was clean, but the right things had to be brought in. So they prepared the vessels and sanctified them. And then they began to offer burnt offerings. The first thing they did was they began to offer a sin offering. They began to offer a thank offering. They began to worship God. They began to pray and ask the Lord for forgiveness of sin. I love it. It's the 29th chapter. You've got to read it on your own. They began to worship God. It was a powerful setting. The very first worship service on the day that they were offering the sin offerings, Hezekiah had coordinated the entire event. So there's a priest out in the foyer, out in the, out in the outer court. He's in front of the brazen altar. He's got the blood. He's got the animal. The flame is, uh, is flying high. And then he's got the trumpeters. They're sounding. He's got the high sounding cymbals. It's a celebration because for the first time in years, intercession is being made in the house of God. It's a powerful thing. And the restoration of music and worship. And then he brings the congregation back to the house of God, almost like David when the tribes go up. And he encourages them to offer sacrifice on the brazen altar, a free will offering of sacrifice. And the 35th verse of the 29th chapter says that the service of the house of the Lord was set in order. It was a beautiful thing. How many know revival and renewal is a beautiful thing? I'm feeling in my heart that we need some reviving in our generation. Chapter 30 transitions real quickly. I got to tell you a little bit about it. I'm not preaching all this, but I got to throw these out. You got to read these on your own. Well, after that, one of the most important things that they wanted to do was they, they said, we've got to have Passover. He began to pray. Passover, how many know Passover is very, very important to the children of Israel? I mean, that was when they were born as a nation. Right? I mean, and they had forgotten it. And so that, the, 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 first of the, month, the first month of the year is when Passover was to be held. They had already missed the time. And so Hezekiah counseled together and said, we've missed the time. He counseled with other leaders and said, but you know what? We're going to trust God to be gracious. And he told the priest, he said, you weren't sanctified and the people didn't come. That's how I feel at church a lot of times. Sometimes we ain't sanctified and you don't come. Oh, that wasn't in the notes, but it felt right. 
And so with this, though, he, he then he wrote a letter, and I love this. He didn't just write a letter to all of Judah. He wrote a letter to all of Israel. From the northernmost tribe to the southernmost tribe, east and west, every tribe, they sent out couriers that went out throughout the city, and they nailed throughout cities, and they nailed a letter inviting them on a particular day to come and participate in Passover. And then when Passover time came, they adjusted it to allow the Levites to assist the worshiper in slaying the Passover lamb because many of the people were not consecrated because the worshiper was the one that was supposed to slay the lamb. But the Bible says that Hezekiah prayed to God, and here's what Hezekiah said. He said, if the worshiper's heart is right, how many know sometimes that's just right where it begins, right there? Sometimes you don't have everything together out here, but moving towards God starts in here. And Hezekiah said, I'm going to pray that God's going to pardon everybody. Even those that don't have their act together. Even those that might still smell like smoke. Even those that are still struggling with some things. Uh, he said, I'm going to pray that God will pardon everyone because your heart is to move closer to God. And so, and then the Bible says, listen to this, the Lord hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people. And I tell you what, worship begins, revival begins, and, and I tell you what, a revival breaks out, and they run that feast for seven days. They gather together and said, we can't go home. It's too much of the glory of God. We're being renewed and refreshed. They add another seven-day revival, seven-night revival. No evangelist, no prophet, just people humbling themselves before God. And there was great joy in Jerusalem. Now you say, what, what, what is so significant about this? If you were to look at history at that time, Assyria is the, the, is the dominant power in the region. And Assyria has already attacked the northern tribes and are threatening Jerusalem. But you know what? There are some times that you can't worry about COVID. There are some times you can't worry about China. There are some times you say, I can't worry about Russia Sometimes I can't worry about the events that are happening, the possibility of an antichrist, the possibility of it. Sometimes I just got to get in the house of the Lord and worship God because he is worthy to be praised. And the children of Israel did. And I love this. The priests and the Levites blessed the people. And the end of the 30th chapter said that when they blessed the people, their voice was heard and their prayer came up to heaven, God's dwelling place. And I would be amiss, I won't preach it today, maybe a later day. The 31st of our chapter, though, the revival continues because people begin to tithe. They begin to give both tithes and free will offerings. That was a very weak amen for a very important point. Because listen, listen, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, but also the hand gives. <laughs> That's the Lee Brown version. And so listen, but, but it's very important because if they wanted the temple, they had to have the priest. And the priest had, a way to, had to have a way to live. The priest has to be able to put tennis shoes on his kids as well. Now, I don't need any tennis shoes on anybody's feet anymore, but I'm not alone. I used to have to put a lot of tennis shoes on people's feet. Thank God now it's just me and Sherry now. And occasionally my kids buy me shoes. Cool. Hallelujah, that's the season of life I'm in. I'm feeling Jesus. I haven't bought a grill. I haven't bought, like, hunting and fishing stuff. There's a payback, Joe, for having six children. You're in that turbulent time right now, but you got to stay focused. It'll come back to you. But you got to sow into it, and it'll come back to you. I feel Jesus right there. 
So they're blessing the people, and the people are then bringing the tithe, and then that, that means there's priestly support, Levitical support, facility support, and benevolence to the people of the land, which is a very, very important part of what they do. So let me say this. Let's begin to shift this. Restoring the house of God, as we see that, that was a revival. Everybody that studied anything about ancient Israel knows about Hezekiah. He's famous in the annals of, of the kings of Israel because of his heart after God. He was passionate after God. But I want to say this. There's a word in what took place there for what we have and who we are today. There's a cultural context that we must remain, that we must recognize. In the church age, you and I, we don't have that central place of worship where everybody goes to simply one place like they did in the days of ancient Israel. So we have, we have churches, and, and we are many members. Come on, somebody, but we make up one body. Right. But each assembly or each church has its own unique gift and calling. And it's unfair to often judge one against the other. But we do that. But in ancient Israel, there was again but one temple. In our generation, we have many members in this one body, many fellowships, but one, one church. But I hear something in my spirit. I'm going to be honest. I've been as repentant as I can be over the last week of time. I hear something in the Spirit. I, I, I hear the Spirit of God speaking to me, to our fellowship. And I'm going to say this to you, and then I'm going to say it through you. I'm not just saying it to you, but I'm saying it through you. We, not just you, not just me, but we have to revalue corporate worship again in the generation which we are living in today. We need to revalue it, and we need to repurpose in our hearts not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is and as the manner of has always been. We need to consider one another, and we need to encourage one another in love and good works. And there are a lot of people that say, Pastor Brown, you know, I'm believing we're living in the last days, and I see movement with China and Russia, and I think that this is that, and this is that, and it's going to lead to this. Well, I'll tell you what, if you really believed it, then you'd be here every time we got the doors open. And then the rest of the time, you'd be walking down the streets telling people that Jesus is coming soon, right? So I'm going to call you out on that today. If you neglect the house of God, then you really don't believe what you're saying in the first place. So I want you to know today, schedules need to be redefined. Priorities need to shift. And more opportunities for both worship and serving have to be created and filled. They have to. I'm going to get to that in a moment. But let me remind you real quickly. What is the purpose? This is what Dr. Braslow always challenges me when I run something by him. He said, Lee, never forget the why. You always have to explain why, why, why is this? What's the purpose for what you're doing? Let me remind you the purpose of a corporate worship service. Let me remind you of why we gather in this house, why you get up in the morning, have your coffee, come in out to this house and just say, you have your coffee there because you typically don't get it here. Why is that? Because you have a tendency to spill it in this carpet and it's hard enough to maintain it anyhow. In the first place, that's just my conviction, not yours, but I'm the pastor. Those are not in the notes, but they sure feel good to say that. And I'll just go ahead and throw this out there today. I just wonder why we can't live two hours of our time away from coffee. I don't come to this house to have coffee and a cookie and a donut. I come to this house to worship the living God. 
who loved me so much that he sent his son on a tree because I was sinful, hateful, evil, and wicked, and I had no access to him. And there was no point that I could gain his presence. But he sent his son, shrouded him in human flesh. He died on a tree for me, pillowed his head in death, gave up the ghost, went down to the lower parts of the earth, took the keys to death, hell, and the grave. On the third day, he rose up, triumphant king, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And when I come here, I don't have time to play games. Number one reason why I come to this house is that I might worship God. That I might praise, that I might enter its gates with thanksgiving and enter its courts with praise. And it matters not what type of music, whether it's old or new, contemporary or old, it would not matter. I would prepare my heart and I would walk to the front of this assembly and I would spin and dance and rejoice because I think about what he's done for me, what he's doing for me, and what he's going to do in the name of the Lord. That's why we gather. God is great. And he is greatly to be praised. And I want to enter his gates with thanksgiving. And I want to enter his courts with praise. I don't bring a bullock and I don't bring a goat. I don't bring a turtle dove. I don't bring a pigeon. But I bring the fruit of my lips giving praise to his name in a corporate setting. Number two, I come to this house and I hope you do to hear the word of God. I thank God for preaching the word. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. I thank God that the word, uh, there's an anointed man or woman that ministers the word. It, re, it, it, it reproves me. It brings me doctrine. It brings me correction. And it teaches me how to live right in a backwards generation. Number three, prayer. Yes, we come to pray for people. Absolutely, we pray when you ask us. I don't just always ask you. The Bible says that if there be any sick among you, let them call for the elders of the church. But it's more than that. It's more than just to pray for you, but it's to give you an opportunity to pray. That was a terrible amen for the, one of the most important things I'm going to say, to give you an opportunity to pray. I know you can pray in your car. I know you can pray before you get up and, and the, or, or go to work or laying there in bed, whatever. But we have designated, poured oil on this place, consecrated an altar, and said, come and lift up your hands in the sanctuary and call upon the name of the Lord. So prayer, you get an opportunity to pray. Then you give an opportunity to give. To give collectively to the local body of Christ. Its purposes are for ministry support. I'll never apologize for that. It, nothing's changed from the old covenant to the new covenant. The Bible plainly says uh, in, the, in the new covenant that we still take care of those who, who minister to us the word. Right. But then the facility. Somebody paid for the seat you're sitting in. Right. Somebody had to bless dots this past Wednesday night who blessed us tremendously with their testimony. And I hope to tell you next Sunday about how we get to bless them again uh, and I'll, more information to come. And then we get to have missions. We don't, we're not confined to Heber Springs. Did you know the work of the kingdom is going on right now somewhere around the world because somebody sent a missionary who preached the gospel and the kingdom of God. And we, we get to be a part of that. It's a privileged opportunity. Number five, we come together to minister to one another in spiritual gifts. We, we come together to encourage one another. You encourage me, I encourage you. We encourage each other. How many know you need encouragement? You need somebody to look you in the eye and say, hey man, you can make it. Don't give up. I've been praying for you. 
I'm here with you. We need that. That's the body. Number six, we're seeking to build a community of fellowship. Come on, we're more than just church attendees. More than just, well, I go to church there. No, that's who I am. These are, I wear these wristbands because it reminds me I'm in covenant with the people of this assembly. Are you hearing me today? That we're in covenant one with the other. We break the bread of communion together. Come on, we break bread and we take the communion cup together. The body needs the body. We're of the household of faith. We are covenant children of Abraham. We're building community, family, relationships that can last a lifetime. And lastly, in this sense, is to be a light to a darkened world. To be a light to a darkened world. So now I'm going to make it very personal. And there's only a handful of people in the sound of my voice and some that I'm very close to that don't know anything about what I'm about to tell you right now. So I'm going to open up a personal testimony. So I was in prayer on Monday. The ladies were having their last Bible study. Lexi was out. So I made sure I was here to get everything opened up. And the ladies got to their place. And I was able to secure the door and uh, where they could escape if they needed to escape. That sounds wrong. I don't mean it that way. But they could, they could leave if they needed to leave. But no one could come in. And I told Alicia, I said, Alicia, if y'all need me, I'm going to be in the sanctuary. And I'm going to be praying. And I was praying this is a personal testimony. I don't need to tell you all my business. But, you know, if you remember last week's sermon, I, pre- I, preached about, I preached about that place of contentment, which, you know, it's, it's, it's an irony to it because Paul told me to pray for a quiet and peaceable life, and he told me to have contentment. But, you know, a place of contentment can also be, lead to a place of complacency if you're not careful. And so I, I, I've, I shared with you last week, but that's where I've been over the last two years. And, and I've been struggling with that, and I just, something wasn't right, and I've been praying, and I've been going through a season of personal consecration, walking before the Lord, saying, God, I want to be empty of some things, just like when Hezekiah cleansed the temple. Come on. The Bible says, sanctify yourself. That's not an old word. That's a new word. That's a, it's in the new covenant like it is in the old. We're to cleanse ourselves, 2 Corinthians 7. Cleanse yourself from all filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit and perfect holiness in the sight of God. I will be unto you a father and you will be unto you to me my children. That's a word for us today. And as I was walking, I was walking right here, left to right, right past this altar, and I got right here. And you don't hear me say it very often because I don't either hear the Lord speak to me uh, enough or I don't want to be that person that says, man, look at me, God spoke to me. You can take that one off the screen if you would just real quickly. And so I heard in my spirit, and I heard a preacher say this. Let me say this. He said, I want to say, I think I heard. And he said, well, why would I say I think I heard? He said, because what was told to me was good, and the devil wouldn't typically tell you anything good. So I'm with him on that. So, But here's what the Lord put in my spirit. He said, Lee, put it back like it was. Just like that. And I immediately knew what it was. I immediately knew because I've been discontented with the present state of our church. I knew immediately that the doors of this church need to open more. I knew, I knew immediately that we needed to create additional opportunities for worship that must occur for this assembly to be who God's called us to be. I'm not comparing ourselves to any church, and God didn't tell me to set the Methodist church in order or the New Life Assembly in order. God didn't tell me to do any of that, but he said, Lee, he said, put it back like it was. And so what I'm announcing today, that in September is going to be the return of Sunday school to this assembly. It's going to be a very important part of our fellowship. We need small group discipleship. We're not a life group church. 
I'm not saying anything negative, but I can't coordinate your motorcycle event and your quilting club and all those things. you got to do that on your own. What we are, this is my, my, my vision as a pastor, and I believe it's the heart of this church. We are a gather at God's house fellowship. I'm not against gathering at your house. If you have barbecue and good barbecue, I might come over. But let me tell you this. I'm more rather to come to this house and gather with you here. We need opportunities for people to participate in a small group setting. We need opportunities for people to lead a class, to develop closer friendships and fellowship, and learn the Word of God. And I said it to the Lord. I said, Lord, can one hour really make the difference? And he quickened it can really make the difference. I believe it can. But one thing that I believe that it will do for this fellowship, and I'll talk to you more about it later when I'm not preaching, when I'm just talking openly. But one thing that I think has hurt our assembly since COVID, and that is before COVID, we were having Sunday school, but after COVID, we have not. And then we had a year of contentment that we didn't possibly need to have. Maybe we did. I don't know. Maybe the land needed to rest for a year. I don't know. But I know this is one of the things that hinders our Sunday morning service is the majority of us do not come in here prepared to worship. I can't say everybody attends Sunday school. They never have and they probably never will. But the ones that do, when they come in this assembly, have prepared their heart, right? Because when that class closes, they're gathering around a table and they're maybe taking somebody by the hand and they're saying, we're going to pray for our worship service. And when they come in, they are ready to go into the presence of God. And the way it is now, we're getting up cold, we're dealing with issues, we're checking the news, we're checking the weather, we're fighting with our families, and we're trying to come in here and get our hearts right. No wonder we're like Katie and we got to get the junk out of our heart in order to worship God. Sunday school will help us with that. It will. Secondly, I'm announcing the return of two monthly Sunday night services in September. Two. I'll tell you why. The first one is a designated youth service. The other is a corporate worship service with the intent to grow the core of the church. What's happening since COVID is the core of our church is weak. And when the core of your church is weak, the rest of the body is weak. My goal will be to increase the number in 2023 as we gain traction and develop new patterns of worship and develop additional worshipers. I knew what God meant. Immediately, I didn't have to ponder. I didn't have to think. I didn't have to say, huh? I didn't have to say, me? No, I knew when he said, Lee, put it back. I knew immediately what it was because our, the doors like in the days of Hezekiah. The present structure was created by COVID and aided by contentment. If we're not careful, and I think we're, we're on that journey, it's leading to complacency. And it's leading to a weakened core. Say, Pastor Brown, don't you know everything that's going on in the crazy times? People can't figure out what to do. Everything is uncertain. Well, I know that. I know that. Well, then you need to go back to the place that's certain. In uncertain times, go back to the thing that you know. Go back to the thing that's unchanged, unmovable. God said, I will build my house and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. China, Russia, what matter? World War I, World War II, World War III, it will matter not. The kingdom of God will be in the earth until Christ returns. And we need to sharpen and encourage one another. It's time to put it back like it was. The doors of the temple need to be opened more. And even with that, it may not satisfy the desires of everybody. And I understand that. But typically, you're not the one responsible for putting together a nursery or security 
And it takes a lot to have a worship service. A lot of times people are unaware of this. But I'm telling you what, it's a necessary sacrifice. The question has to be asked, what's your response going to be? Perhaps a broken culture needs to know that there's a place and there's a people from whom you can hear the gospel, that you can learn of his grace and you can encounter the power of the Spirit of God. I've said this, the Sunday night service, I'm not saying it's going to be revival. I've learned over 20 plus years of pastoring, you cannot plan revival. Hezekiah didn't plan revival. Hezekiah just put the thing back in order and God visited his people. You can't plan revival, but what you can do, what you can do is plan to grow and develop a core fellowship. And I've said this for many years, and I'll say it again. You cannot pass the slippery baton of Pentecostalism to another generation without some measure of a Sunday night service. If you don't create a moment, are you hearing me today? If you don't create an opportunity for, and where people come and just simply say, God, I need you, and I need your presence, and we need the work of the Holy Spirit among us. I'm insufficient of myself. I need God's power in my life. In the changing culture in which we live today, you need the presence of God on your life. You, you need to walk out of the presence of God with the glory of God upon you as a shield about you. Come on, when Jesus came down out of the wilderness after 40 days, they tried to push him off the edge of the cliff at Nazareth. He just turned around and walked right through him like a force field. Just walking right through him was the power of God. Nobody could even put a hand on him because of the anointing of God on his life. And we need the presence of God in our midst. So the question again must be asked, what will your response be? I wrote it this way. In one sense, the, the church is unique. In one sense, you're the congregation. The writer uh, has a... Uh, the writer writing about Hezekiah references the congregation. But in, in another sense, you're also the priests and the Levites, too, because you have access to God. So it's, it's a little bit of both. The simple reality is the weakened structure of the church has weakened our fellowship. It's not the Lord's day anymore. It's occasionally the Lord's few minutes, if I'm willing to give him that time, if I don't have something else to do. If there's not something more important. And I'm not saying that the things that you're involved in are not important. And I'm not saying that all the activities that we have with our children are not important. When you start saying, Pastor, you don't understand, I wish I could take you back in time. And say, you should have seen me and Sherry juggling six children. And doing everything that you're doing. We know, we know. But I will say this, is there anything more important? You know, I look back at my children as they're, they're aging and growing and developing patterns of life. And I thank God for our times with basketball. We were a big basketball family like the Riggs family is today. And, and it, meant, it meant a lot. It meant a lot to us. I mean, all of us, even the ones that weren't playing. We, 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 they were, we, we all were. But you know what? <laughs> that season has come and gone. And the farther you get away from it, the less value it seems to really have had. What matters is, did the word get inside them? Right? Did I teach them to be a pillar in the house of God? Can God call them and count on them for ministry? That's what my prayer is today. I'm not praying that one day they'll get up and say, man, I w I'm going to go try out for a semi-pro team. I, I pray, dear God, let them be active in the house of God. That's my prayer right now. 
I know it's a sacrifice, but let me say this. Daryl's joining me on the platform. Nothing of value is produced without sacrifice. Do you believe that today? Jesus said, with the measure we meet, it's measured back to you again. Come on now. With the measure that we meet, it's measured back to us again. I, I arrived at the, at the place where I looked internally and I said, our mission and our, I, I'm not talking about any other church, but our mission and our purpose cannot be limited to the present scope. The COVID-produced structure, it simply cannot. We were made for more. We were made for more. And it, it begins with simply opening the doors a little more and putting it back like it was. But I want to encourage you, let's do so with enthusiasm. Let's do so with faith. Come on. Let's rededicate ourselves to the house of God. Come on. Let's have a celebration and hope and expectation. I believe that joy can fill our hearts. I've struggled for two years, church family, not because of COVID, because of the election. I've been honest with you. I haven't hid from you. You may feel differently than me, but you don't have a microphone. I've struggled, but I can't live in that. I cannot live in this. Hezekiah is experiencing revival when Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, is plotting his demise. Come on now. The end of that story is Sennacherib does attack Judah, surrounds the city. But because the doors of the temple had been opened, they said, oh, this, this ain't in the notes, but I'm going to preach it. I felt the Holy Ghost drop it right there in my spirit real quickly. And so let me just tell you how that all ended. And so Sennacherib is the king of Assyria, and he has devastated Israel, the northern ten tribes. Taken so many of them, ravaged them. The Assyrians were brutal, brutal. They would put, no, they would put hooks in the noses of their captives and lead them back to back to their lands, they would oftentimes literally rip the unborn children from the womb of mothers to just desecrate the land. They were brutal. There was hatred. And Sennacherib comes, if I'm pronouncing his name right, I pronounce it wrong most of the time, but it's the way it looks like it ought to say, be spelled. And so he comes and he sends his, his leaders to surround Jerusalem and they write a letter and they say, don't listen to Hezekiah. Don't listen. Why are you? Your city's going to be just like all the other cities. We're going to destroy you, and we're going to destroy Hezekiah. And he's lied to you. And they even had somebody read it in the Hebrew tongue, so that because the city of Jerusalem was shut up, everybody was taken had had fled to the city. But because the doors of the house of God were open. And because worship had been restored, Hezekiah took that letter. And you know where he went with it? He went into the house of God. He went into the house of God because a familiarity had been created again. The path had grown familiar. And he got into the house of God and he unscrolled it. And he looked toward heaven and he said, God, I don't have to tell you what's been said. You heard everything and you see what's written. God, we need your help. An army of about 200,000 people had surrounded the city of Jerusalem. But that night, because of Hezekiah's prayer in the house of God, on a Sunday night service, just throwing that one in for, for good marks, that night the Lord sent an angel, and the next morning 185,000 men of the Assyrian army died in a night's time 
and the king tucked his tail and fled back to his, the land of Assyria. And he went to worship. Listen to this. It gets better. He went to worship in the house of his God, and the people of Assyria rose up and killed him in the house of his God because he's worshiping a false god, not the one true God. But Hezekiah was in the house of God because he took the, and he had the courage to open the doors up. I tell you, I feel that in my heart. I feel like there's more for us if we will dedicate ourselves to the house of God. And it's a journey. It's a journey. And it doesn't happen overnight. The structure's got to be in place. Infrastructure. People have got to volunteer. Helpers are going to be needed in certain areas. Sacrifice has to be made. But I believe the good far not, I won't say outweighs, but I believe the good is produced because of the sacrifice that will be made. So I want to ask you to stand up with me here today. Put that title, Sister Lori, if you would, back on the platform. Your pastor, Pastor Brown, does not say very often, God spoke to me. I don't say those words. I don't try to sound spiritual in front of you. I don't try to say because I, 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 there have been many times I have prayed and asked and sought the Lord and said, God, I... I must be the most ignorant pastor anywhere because I need an angel of God to come in here to make this right for me because I'm so struggling to hear God's voice. But it's the oddest thing because when it comes, you know it. It's like Elijah was in the cave. There was a fire. There was a wind. But there was no voice of God. But the moment that voice started speaking, he knew that was the voice of God. And in that moment of time, I knew that was the Lord's voice. I paused. I stopped. And just right there, right at the altar. I don't know if God meant it that way. He could have spoke right there, but he didn't. It was right as I walked right in front of the altar. And he said those simple words, Lee, put it back like it was. And I felt it in my heart. I felt peace immediately. I began to talk to people that I felt like were critical to help me weigh some things out. And I felt confident coming to the pulpit today to say that this is the will of God for our church. It's going to make us stronger. It's going to make... <laughs> Non-exercise doesn't make you stronger. A body in motion stays in motion. We want to get stronger, we've got to exercise. We exercise in the house of the Lord by prayer, worship, and we become a light to the people around us. So I'm going to ask you today, have your heads bowed and your eyes closed for just a moment of time. I want to give a two-fold invitation. First of all, today, I was preaching to our church family today, to the people I know and love that I have close fellowship with, very close fellowship. I never know who is among us because there could be somebody today, somebody today that has never made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to give that person that opportunity today. If that's you, let me tell you, you're not here by accident. You didn't know it, but you got up this morning. It was God that was bringing you here. It was God that was pulling you to this place. If you're here today and you say, Pastor, I would like to make Jesus the Lord of my life. You've talked about him. You've mentioned, you've referenced the sin. You've referenced the blood. You've talked about his death, his burial, his resurrection. I want to put my faith and trust in him. If that's you, quickly slip your hand up. I want to have prayer with you today. If there's anybody under the sound of my voice, anybody today. Secondly, I want to ask you to lift your eyes up towards Pastor Brown. I just think it would be most appropriate today. If you can, if you will, let's close by coming to the, to the altar, the altar area, as many as can. As many as can. 
No, if you, if you can't, that doesn't mean you're not in, in your heart. That just means there's too many people at the front. I just think we ought to come to the front and just say, God, I want to rededicate myself to the house of God. I just want to say, God, give me the courage. Give me the, the, the disciplines. Give me the, the passion. Give me the zeal. Let me awaken hope in my heart for what God can do when his body comes together. Come on, if that's you, would y'all please join me here today as a, cult, as a family, as a family today in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. And we're going to pray. We're going to pray. I won't keep you long. I'm going to let you out of here tonight or today. And y'all got to give us time to get some infrastructure together and all those things. And some of y'all are hearing it for the first time. And other leaders, Joe was out of town. And I didn't have time to talk with him. And I'm just working these things out. But that's just, that's just the way it went. But I'm trusting for the best days ahead, not behind. I preached last week, you got to come out of the cave. And even for us to come out of a cave of contentment before it becomes a cave of complacency. Are you hearing me today? There's power when the church comes together. Paul reproved the church at Corinth. He said, I praise you not because when you come together, it's not for the better, but it's for the worse. That's a bad place to be. It doesn't have to be that way. Every time we come together, it can be for the better. For his glory and for our good. Isn't that right? So let's pray. Let's pray. You pray in your own way. I've got a microphone, but you pray with me, please. Please, in your own way. It's you just dedicate yourself. Dedicate yourself. And then also, we're going to pray a prayer of dedication to this facility. We're going to one day relocate to the bypass, but we're not there yet. And so this is still, for us, this is Jerusalem. For us, this is Mount Zion. For, thus, for us, this is the house of God. This is the house of God. So, Father, today I join my faith with each person, young and old alike, male or female. Today, God, a member who's been faithful or an adherent who probably needs to be a member. And God, today I just want to thank you for a place that we have designated and that somebody maybe a hundred years ago, came to this valley and began to hold corporate worship services, began to designate a, a, a log building. Somebody took an old log cabin right here in this valley, and they began to have spirit-filled Pentecostal worship services when, Father, as we said often, when it wasn't cool to be Pentecostal or charismatic, suffered reproach for it, but they endured and then they built a white building, a wooden frame building, looked like a church building that they're accustomed to seeing. And then they built this brick building, and then they built this larger building. And from that time till now, God, people have been coming, and we have had seasons of yes and seasons of no, seasons of growth, seasons of decline, seasons, Father God, of spiritual vibrancy and vitality, and seasons of complacency. And God, I want to, before, I want to head off contentment before it becomes complacency. I want to head it off, God. I want to begin to divert it right back. And I want to pray, God, in this house, that it, not only in the hearts of the people, but in my heart, and JoJo's heart, and Jace's heart, and Shane's heart, and Chelsea and Aaron's heart, and in the heart of our leaders and our deacons and their spouses, all the spouses of the staff, God, Father God, that there is a passion for that collective gathering, that we'll be like David. I was glad. No matter what sacrifice it is, no matter what challenge it puts on me, whatever I have to do, my busy schedule, the fatigue that I might feel, that the good, Father God, the end, Father, is going to be greater than the sacrifice. 
And so, Lord, I pray that. I pray it begins not just in the church, but in us as leaders, but then all the church family, all the congregation, all the congregation, God, I pray. Father, let there be great joy among us. Let there be great joy. Let it not be, Father God, reluctance. Let it not be, well, you know what? They don't do that in today's time. No, we need to do that in this time. In the unsettled, uncertain times, we look to what's certain. The church, the city set on a hill that cannot be hid, God. The fire that, Father God, cannot be extinguished. So, Lord, I thank you today in the name of Jesus. And so we, as a fellowship, dedicate ourselves, fresh and new, Father God, to our involvement in corporate worship. As iron sharpens iron. Come on, somebody. I want to sharpen and improve the countenance of my friend. I want to build relationships and friendships. I want to share the word and receive the word. I want to be prayed for, but I also want to pray for. I may receive, but I'm also going to give, God, in the name of Jesus. And in doing so, every time I get in the vehicle, every time you get in your car, every time you make your journey down the mountain, across the city, wherever you're coming from, it matters not, you're being a light to this culture. That there's a God, and there's a Christ who is a mediator between that God and men, and there's a people that are willing to share his love with them if they'll but let us. So we'll be a witness, God, a greater witness than what we've been. I pray that. I believe for this moment, God. I believe you've ordered it. I believe like in the days of Hezekiah, Hezekiah opened the doors of the church. God, I believe you quickened in my heart and you said, Lee, put it back like it was. And so, God, I'm going to believe that was a word for our fellowship. I believe our fellowship's enthusiasm that will be seen and their willingness to serve and to help us to facilitate this will be readily known and we will see fruit from it. You will begin to develop core leaders among us, God. A core group of people strong in the Lord. Come on, somebody, strong in the Lord. Growing in faith, growing in grace, growing in knowledge. Adding, adding daily, Father, to the church, God. We believe for it in the name of Jesus. And God, as I've said, and I pray, I want to ask you this. Pray this, please pray this. It's very important we pray this when I hear that, God, that we will somehow pass the baton of Pentecostalism. It's a slippery baton, but we can't run without it. But we'll pass it to another generation, God. That we'll teach men and women how to be spirit-filled, God. To how not to be weird and odd and crazy, but to be full of the Holy Spirit and power and unction and anointing and walk in the anointing of God and not be ashamed of it, Lord. Father, but to trust in the power of the Holy Spirit, God. So we love you today, and I'm so grateful, so grateful for this moment. It confirms in my heart, God, that this was born of God. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, amen. Lori, I left out one verse. Read one verse with me, that last verse. I left it out, didn't I? And Hezekiah, so, and Leroy rejoiced. That's the, that's the modern version. And all the people that God had prepared the people, for the thing was done suddenly. Amen. Sometimes you don't have to have a, a committee. Sometimes you just got to obey God. Come on. So, I think we need to rejoice. I think we need to shout, God, we love you, God. Hallelujah. We bless the Lord. We bless the Lord. We bless the Lord in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Listen, love one another. And I got to ask you one last thing. If you see one of the six members of the church, new members, that you didn't get a chance to come by and hug their neck or greet them, make sure you do so before you dismiss today. Amen. Love one another. God bless you. 
Who's going to be with us next Sunday morning? The good doctor, Dr. Brassfield. Wednesday night. Wednesday night. We're going to get to study the Bible again, aren't we, Jace? Amen. Love.